Before the law came, Paul was alive. But when the commandment came, when he understood all that God demands, even in the heart, Paul died. In other words, all of his self-confidence, all of his self-righteousness, all of his spiritual pride died. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series, Caught in the Act. You know, one of the most extraordinary events to ever occur in the history of the church is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Think about it. The man formerly known as Saul, who Christ later renamed Paul went from being the greatest enemy of the Christian church to being its greatest champion. One thing that made Paul's conversion so extraordinary was the change in his view about Jesus Christ. And it's this incredible heart transformation of Paul that Tom will begin to unpack for us today. And as we begin our program, ask yourself this question. Has your heart and mind been transformed? Let's join our teacher now to find out more on The Word Unleashed. Well, Romans chapter 7. I think you understand that next to the birth, life, and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second most extraordinary event in the history of the Christian church is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Have you ever thought about it and really contemplated the reality that on the Damascus Road, the chief enemy of the Christian church became, in a moment, its chief proponent, its chief advocate? The most extraordinary thing about Paul's conversion, I think, was how his view of Jesus Christ changed. In Galatians chapter 1, he writes, "'I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea which were in Christ,' But only they kept hearing this, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. Are there 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5? Listen to this with the background of Paul in mind. He writes, we do not preach ourselves, but Messiah, Jesus, as Lord. Or... Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a slave of Messiah Jesus, called to be his apostle, his sent one. Paul's view of Christ changed dramatically. But that wasn't all that changed. His view of himself changed as well. In fact, Philippians chapter 3, turn there for a moment with me. Keep your finger here in Romans 7. Philippians chapter 3 and Here, Paul describes the radical change that occurred in his thinking. His thinking both about Christ and about himself. In verses 4 through 6 of Philippians 3, we get a glimpse of Paul the Pharisee, the persecutor of the church. He says, Before my conversion, I had great confidence in my flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I had far more. And here's where his confidence was. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. I belonged to the nation of Israel. I was from one of the two loyal tribes, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe from which the first king of Israel came. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
In other words, I've followed the cultural traditions of of the Jews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That was Paul the Pharisee, Paul the persecutor. That was his mindset about himself before his conversion. In verses 9 to 11, I'm sorry, verses 7 to 11, you get a feel for how Paul changed, how his mindset about both himself and Christ changed. Here we see Paul the Christian, Paul the follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the Messiah. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain the Messiah and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of of faith. That is a remarkable change in his mindset, both about Christ and himself. Was there any work of the Spirit in Paul's heart preparing him for the gospel prior to the Damascus Road experience? Paul's answer in Romans chapter 7 is absolutely yes, there was. And he's describing it for us. Go back now with me to Romans chapter 7. Just to remind you of the context of this chapter, back in chapter 6, verse 14, Paul made this amazing, extraordinary comment. He said, you are not under law, but under grace. He knew that that comment would invite a number of questions, so he comes to chapter 7, and here in this great chapter, he focuses on the law. We've seen in the first six verses of of Romans chapter 7, our death to the law. If you're a Christian, you died to the law, and we looked at all that that means. In verses 7 through 13, Paul gives a defense of the law, and that's the paragraph that we're examining together. Let me read it for us again. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now, in this paragraph, Paul is responding to two objections that he anticipates 
from his Jewish opponents. And he answers both of those objections. The first objection comes in verse 7, and he answers it from verse 7 down through verse 12. The second objection comes in verse 13, and he answers it there in verse 13. Now, we're looking at the first objection. Last week, we begin to study just the first objection that Paul anticipated and his answer. Now, the overarching point of in response to this first objection we learned last week in verses 7 through 12 is this. God's moral law doesn't cause your sin. That's the bottom line he wants us to get. God's moral law doesn't cause your sin. He begins with the objection itself in verse 7, and the objection is this. Paul, your teaching leads to the logical conclusion that God's law is evil, that it is somehow flawed, that it is the cause of sin. Notice verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Then beginning in the middle of verse 7 and running down through verse 12, Paul gives his answer to that objection. And we summarized his answer in this way. No, the problem is not the law. Our inherent sinfulness is what causes our sin. Now, as Paul lays out that response, he begins his answer by pointing out, as we noted last week, the real purpose of the law for unbelievers. The law serves, as it's unfolded in this passage, two basic purposes. First of all, it identifies those things that are sinful. The law says, don't do that because it's contrary to the purposes of God. It identifies what is sin. Thoughts, words, actions, attitudes that are sinful. But beyond that, the law goes on to show me that I am a sinner, to show Paul that he was a sinner, to show you that you are a sinner. Not just what is sinful in some sort of, of academic way, but also to show me that I myself have broken those laws and am a sinner. That's the real purpose of the law for unbelievers, and it serves that purpose. Paul moves on in his answer, having shown us the real purpose of the law, to show us the real cause of our sin. How did the law show Paul that he was a sinner? Specifically, how did the Tenth Commandment do that in Paul's heart? Well, verses 8 through 11 show the process that the law followed in using the Tenth Commandment to prove to Paul the Pharisee that he was in fact a sinner. Now he begins here with a summary statement of the truth in verse 8. Notice what he says. But sin, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. Paul says the problem was never the law. The problem was sin. Now, the word sin here doesn't refer to acts of sin. Don't think in terms of plural sins. That's not what he's talking about. Here, he's talking about sin as a controlling power. He's talking about the inherent state of sinfulness in which we were all born. The fallen human nature that dominated our lives before Christ. He says, my fallenness, my sinful nature before Christ, notice verse 8, taking opportunity. 
That's a fascinating word. That Greek word translated opportunity, it's used in secular Greek for a starting point. It's also used when it comes to military things as a base of operations. Paul says, my inherent sinfulness established a base of operation in my life. And by the way, this is true of you as well. This is true of me. Your inherent sinfulness established a base of operations in your life. How? Notice what he says in verse 8. Through the commandment. In Paul's case, he's still talking here about the 10th commandment that he mentioned in verse 7. You shall not covet. But sin, taking a base of operations through the 10th commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. That word produced is a, is a strong word in the original language. It refers to sin as being active and powerful and effective. And notice, it produced in Paul coveting of every kind. That is, every possible category of coveting. As Paul came to understand the Tenth Commandment, as its truth came to bear on his heart, his sinfulness, his inherent sin, seized on that commandment as a base of operations to actually produce in him coveting of all kinds of things. From coveting material possessions, the Pharisees, by the way, were lovers of money, Jesus tells us. In addition, sexual lust, lust and craving for power and position, and on and on and on. Coveting of every possible kind Paul experienced. By the way, let me just say that here we learn something very important about religious, externally religious people that appear to be good. You know people like that. Sometimes we see them on television. You know, you watch the Pope and everyone's acting like he's a holy man or, or some religious guru or leader. Or maybe there's somebody you know in your neighborhood, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness who, who's never come to embrace the true gospel. Externally, they may look like Paul did before his conversion. They may look like they keep the law. But understand this, there is no good or righteous or holy person who has not been changed by the power of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Inside, whatever they may look to you on the outside like, inside they are still sinners. This was true even of Pharisees like Paul. In fact, turn back to Matthew our Lord's familiar words in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, and notice verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish. What's he talking about? He's talking about their external behavior. The way they look to the world, it all looked great, but inside... You are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Listen, every time you see someone who claims to be a holy, godly person, 
but has never come to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. However they may look on the outside, notice verse 28, they may outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly, Jesus says, they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I don't care who they are. From the top to the bottom, this is the way reality is. Now go back to Romans chapter 7. How exactly does our sin nature use God's law as a sort of base of operations to actually produce more sin in us? Well, the primary way is this. It stokes our rebellion against God by persuading us that our autonomy is threatened. This is the primary way sin works. God says, you shall not. And what is our immediate response to that? I would really like to live my life my own way. Thank you very much. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Paul says, the mind set on the flesh. This is every unbelieving mind, every unbeliever's mindset. Their mind is set on the things pertaining to human fallenness. The mindset on the flesh, the unbelieving mind, notice this, is hostile toward God. You, you hear a lot of unbelievers talk about, yeah, I, you know, I pursue God, I have a relationship with God. Listen, that's always a God of their own making. It's never the true God of the Bible because the unbelieving mind is hostile toward the true God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. You see, when God says, you shall not, it awakens within us our desire for self-rule. And we immediately say, I don't want that. I want to do my own thing. I want to go my own way. In fact, this is the reason, the primary reason, that most people who hear the gospel don't come to Jesus Christ. It's because they want to be Lord of their own life. They're responding like the, like the people of Israel on, on the day of the crucifixion. We will not have this man to rule over us. That's the real issue. Occasionally, I'll talk to someone who says, you know, I'm just struggling with intellectually with, the, with who Jesus is, whether or not he existed, what the gospel is. And occasionally, those are legitimate questions. But more often than not, and I've even said this to people and had them admit to me that it's true. The issue is not an intellectual one. The issue is a moral one. I want to be Lord. I don't want anybody else to be Lord. It comes down to autonomy, to self-rule. So the law stokes our rebellion by persuading us that our autonomy is threatened. It also, and this is just part of fallen humanness as well, it makes what is forbidden more attractive. I gave you the illustration of the child who's told not to touch something that he didn't want to touch prior to that command. We respond exactly the same way. Now go back to chapter 7. Having given us that sort of summary statement, Paul outlines for us the process beginning in the middle of verse 8 down through verse 11. These verses are Paul's spiritual autobiography. They describe Paul's spiritual journey before the Damascus Road. But this is not just his spiritual autobiography. If you're in Christ, this is your biography as well. 
this is how the Spirit used the law in your life to bring you to the end of yourself and to drive you to Jesus Christ. Let's look at it. Let me read it again for you. Chapter 7, beginning in the middle of verse 8. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now I want you to notice how Paul divides his spiritual autobiography. He talks about the time before the commandment came, and then he talks about the time the commandment came, and then he talks about the time after the commandment came. So let's look at that. First of all, notice before the commandment came. Verse 8, for apart from the law. That's just another way to say before the commandment came. He doesn't mean here that there are people who don't have God's law. That's contrary to what he's already taught in this great letter. He's already argued, you remember back in chapter 1 as well as in chapter 2, that pagans have the law of God where? The substance of his law is written on their hearts. The work of the law is written on the heart. And then in chapter 2, he argues that the Jews have the written law. Everybody has the law. There has never been anyone on this planet apart from the law in the sense that they didn't know what God demanded of them. The basic demands of God. So what does Paul mean when he talks about being apart from the law? He's talking about before a person comes to a full understanding of God's law. That's going to become obvious as we work our way through this. Before someone comes to a complete understanding of what God requires, notice verse 8, apart from the law, sin is dead. doesn't mean it's non-existent. They're still sinners. It just means it's, it's dormant. And he's going to explain what that means in just a moment. Paul said, This is exactly what was true of him. Notice verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. The word once, of course, means this was true in his past, but it's no longer true. So when is Paul talking about? When was Paul alive apart from the law? Well, you understand, if you know anything about Paul and anything about the New Testament, that there was certainly never a time in Paul's life as the son of a Pharisee and a Pharisee himself when he was apart from the law in the sense that he didn't know God's law. He would have been taught God's law from from the time he was born. No, he's talking about before he came to a complete understanding here in the context of the 10th commandment. Paul was still a sinner. That's the whole point of this entire passage. Before Christ, he was, he was still a sinner. That's not what he's talking about. For the most part, he was unaware of sin's presence in his life. Yes, he knew he sinned, but he had no idea of the magnitude or the depth or the depravity of his heart. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, Caught in the Act. Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word, and we do hope you'll join us then. But before we leave you today, here again is Tom with some closing thoughts. Tom? You know, understanding this radical change 
that theologians call regeneration. Our Lord calls being born again. Understanding that is so crucial for us as believers. Let me encourage you to visit the Word Unleashed website, and there you'll learn about some of the other passages that deal with this remarkable change. Passages like Ephesians 2, 1-10, Philippians chapter 3, where Paul describes the radical change that happened in his life in great detail. So let me encourage you to to take advantage of those resources where you can learn and grow in your knowledge of this change that has occurred in you. And let me also encourage you to take advantage to share this good news, the gospel, with others. There are no more Damascus Road experiences. Our Lord isn't revealing himself in visions to people. Instead, he's inviting us as believers, commanding us to share this message with others. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.